Hi, this is Doug Green with What Really Matters Interviews, and today I'm interviewing a woman named Mary Helen Fine about suffering, about Buddhism, about these things called the five skandhas, and I may be not pronouncing that word quite right, but let me give you a real quick background on why I find this very intriguing. Um, As some of you may know, a few years back, I really went down the rabbit hole deep. I was I was diagnosed with glaucoma, and I almost went blind, and I still could. And I went down the rabbit hole very, very far. I know suffering. Part of what Buddhism is about is re, is eliminating suffering. And I heard Mary Helen Fine speak at a uh, at the Mountain Stream meditation center in Nevada City, and she talks specifically about suffering and also a a deeper subject about kind of how we create suffering, what causes suffering, and even more deeper than that, like who are we really? And I was fascinated. It was this whole presentation of kind of Who are we and what really matters, uh, which is the core essence of these podcasts. So I came, what I want to do here is dive deeply into this, uh, into sort of exploring suffering and these five skandhas and all of these things. And what you can take away from this is really having a better sense of who we are and who we're not, um, how we create suffering, how you can stop creating suffering and really live a life that's more in alignment with source or however you want to think about that. Source, God, great spirit, life, any of that. So without further ado, um, Mary Helen, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Doug. I really appreciate Uh the opportunity. Um, Perhaps you can, you know, let's... I think the first question I have is why. Why is this so important to know? This whole idea of skandhas and the five, I think you've called them the five agitations? Aggregations is good, (laughs) but it's actually aggregates. (laughs) Um, So why is this so important? Why would people want to know about this? Well, the idea behind the aggregates is that they make up our world and we mistake them to be something that they're not. And that basic uh, misconception causes a lot of our suffering. So maybe the word illusion comes in here, right? Our, yeah. What the world is versus what we think it is, we kind of live in this state of illusion. Is that a... Yes, we do. We live in an amazing state of delusion. <clears throat> I'll talk about that. So maybe... Um, I remember the part that kind of set the stage on this was there were three key components about Buddhism that you mentioned, and uh, maybe you can, and then what we're talking about today fits within one of those, right? That's right. The the three uh, key components that you're talking about are called the three characteristics of existence, the three marks of existence. And I always like to use the Pali words for things because sometimes they shed light on shades of meaning. So the Pali words for these three characteristics are dukkha, anicca, anatta. And I'll go into each one of them a little bit. So the first one is dukkha, and dukkha means suffering. And, you know, um, 
I really appreciate your talking about what you've been through. And, um, and I know that everybody has suffering in their lives. And we, we, um, it's the first noble truth. The first thing the Buddha ever said in, any of, in his first talk was that we all suffer. And we suffer for so many different reasons, you know. Some of those reasons are physical. We get old, we get sick, uh, we die. Some of those reasons are psychological. We, um, we don't get what we want. We get what we don't want. The Buddha said, I teach only suffering and the end of suffering. So that's the North Star in this, is to, to reduce or eliminate suffering in your life. So hold on to that, folks. This is, that's the goal. If you suffer, you, there is a path out of this. And Buddha points towards that. I almost, I think I'll add this too. In my experience, although Buddhism is a religion of sorts, it is also, um, in my experience, a person. It's about personal growth. It's really about getting to know yourself. The Buddha was all about self exploration and who are we? Why are we the way we are? So the suffering piece is, is at the core of this. So, okay. That is so true. That is exactly right. I mean, that's why, that's what we're doing here. We're, we're trying to be happy. We all want to be happy. We want, I mean, there's suffering that comes to us, but don't make it worse, you know? <laughs> Put it in street talk as, <laughs> As one of my uh, friends, Tony Bernard, he's a teacher who's trying to put these concepts into street talk. So don't make it worse. Okay, so the f so there's these three marks or characteristics of existence. The first one is that we suffer. What's the second one? The second one, anicca, is impermanence. Everything that arises passes away, including us. Everything is in transit. Everything is changing from one thing to another. So you were talking about illusion. We live under this constant illusion that the world is solid and stable and unchanging, that we can have some control over things and make our lives secure and get insurance and not have to worry about anything. And, and you know, that's kind of all illusion. The truth is we're not immortal. We're all going to die. But we walk around, and this is the most amazing thing in the world. Everybody walks around all day, every day, believing that they're never going to die, that they're here forever. We truly believe in our own mortality. <laughs> I mean, if you question them, they'll give in. But, you know, that's not how we live. And it's just incredible, isn't it? When you, there's really only three guarantees in life. You're born. That's a given if you're here. Two, you will be taxed. <laughs> and the third one is nobody gets out alive. Nobody ever has. And as of today, anyway, um, you you are going to die. So that, there is that to just, that's one of the t three truths, right? It really is. And, and isn't there a little voice that says, yeah, but not me. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite remarkable. <laughs> So those are the first two marks of existence. The third one is the one that we're really interested in today because it relates to this subject of the five aggregates of clinging. So this is, um, this is the hard one. The Buddha said that our sense of self, in any absolute sense, is a delusion. 
that the self is uh, created by this combination of the aggregates that make up our whole world, which combine and give us a sense that we have a self. So it's kind of, um, I want to say it's almost like the man behind the curtain, right? There's the the illusion of the screen. There's Oz on this, the great Oz. And I think what you're saying here is that Oz really doesn't exist. Um, in fact, the man behind the curtain doesn't even really exist, if I'm interpreting this right, yeah? Yeah, I think you've got it right. So, okay, so just to paint the big picture again, first of all, we've got suffering. That's a guarantee. You will suffer. <laughs> but Buddha says you don't have to suffer. There is a way to sort of transcend that, right? Right. Okay, and then the second part is nothing is forever. Nothing is permanent. In fact, the whole concept of permanence is a delusion. And now we've got into we've got this whole thing about having this sense of self. I am. I think, therefore I am. There's this thing that there's me and there's you and there's objects out there. And I think that's what we're going to deep dive into now with these five skandhas or these five, what do you call them, the aggregates of clinging? The five aggregates of clinging. Or heaps. I like that word, yeah, heaps. Yeah. We've got these five piles or heaps right. of clinging that right. we do. This idea that the Buddha introduced of the five aggregates of clinging, the word that he used was khanda. That's the Pali word. And in Sanskrit, skanda. This word, before the time of the Buddha, it just meant a pile of stuff, a heap, uh, a collection, a bundle, a group. And often the Buddha would take an ordinary word and he would repurpose it for a psychological function that he wanted to describe. So, and then he could refer to that word over and over in his teachings. So this word, the khandas, the aggregates, <clears throat> means just a pile of stuff. And they, he said there are these five piles of stuff, five groupings of stuff that make up our entire existence, our entire world, everything we know. And I want to list them for you quickly, and then we'll go into each one. So just to put some context on this, you are this five, this, this, these five things that we're about to talk about. That is you. That is who you are. Um, yeah? Well, that's, you, that's all you know. Everything you, is, that you know about uh, is, is made up of these five things. And they're never alone. They all are all five present. And they are what you experience. But you transform it into an idea of the self. Okay. So go ahead. Okay. So the five things are matter. And I'm going to give you the Pali word for each one, rupa. Feeling tone, vedana. Perception, sanya. Mental formations, sankara. Consciousness, vijnana. I, and I want to add something here. I, in my notes, I see another way to look at these as the matter you can think of as being your body. Uh, the second skanda is, which is 
vandana is actually your feelings, your pleasure, and your pain. It's sort of this emotional side, um, and maybe sensations. And then number three is your perception, which is pattern recognition. Um, you know, it's how you perceive things. Number four is your mental state. Um, that was mental formations, as you called it. And then Vinana, this consciousness is my consciousness now. I'm not even going to take a guess at exactly how Buddha played with that one. But so you got those five things, and That's this right. this forms your how you perceive reality. That's right. That's right. That's how reality presents itself to us. So, and one of the things I love so much about Buddhism is that it provides us with this amazing map of our psychology as human beings. And not just uh, psychology the way we think of it today in terms of pathology and what's wrong with us, but more potential. Our psychology, how it's structured, and what is the potential of it? What potential can we reach with it? So this is really key to that map of human psychology. It's kind of like, how do you work? If you were to look at yourself as a machine or as this software program, what are the five kind of key components of that? Right, exactly, exactly. I mean, what really matters, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if you were a software development team, you'd have your Rupa team, you'd have your Vedna team, and they'd all be working on their different parts of it. <clears throat> so let's start off with, um, you said Rupa, which is the body, right? Yeah. Well, Rupa is form or matter, and we generally divide it into internal and external Rupa. Internal Rupa, you're right, that's our body. But external Rupa goes beyond. External Rupa is every physical thing in the universe besides our body. So it's our clothing, our uh, sandwich we just ate for lunch, all the trees, uh, the planet Earth, the stars, the galaxy, the whole universe, any other universes, anything <laughs> physical that's out there is Rupa. So we kind of got big Rupa and little Rupa. And I think of form, and again, Rupa is form and matter. Yes. So <clears throat> just want to throw this in right now. The Buddha often taught to break Rupa down into the four great elements. And he called them solidity, fluidity, heat, and motion. That everything physical is made up of those four elements. And what's really interesting to me that is in you know, the <clears throat> 1600s, Shakespeare is using the same four elements in his art and his plays. He had slightly different names for them. So solidity becomes earth. Fluidity becomes water. Motion becomes air. And heat is heat. Heat is fire. We have earth, air, fire, and water. Same elements. You know, 2,000 years later. Mm. Impressive, huh? It's a good concept if it lasts so long. Shakespeare was one smart dude. <laughs> he was. He was. He also had a good map of how our psychology works. <clears throat> so <clears throat> the other thing to talk about with Rupa, because Rupa includes our five senses, our five physical senses. And those are the sense of sight, hearing, touch, taste, smell. These are the sense doors. We know nothing that doesn't come in to our sense doors. That's our connection to the outside world. <clears throat> okay. 
Um, let's. What's the next one? Vendana, right? Feeling yeah. tone. Just to wrap up Rupo and say one more thing. Okay. Um, that's the first big pile of stuff. But we were talking earlier about illusion, delusion. And the point I want to make about Rupa is that we confuse it with ourself. We say, my body, this is me, my hand, my house, my yard, my planet. All that's an illusion. I love the quote from Wittgenstein. He said, the self is an illusion caused by grammar. You can hardly say a sentence that doesn't start with the word I or have the words me or mine in it. So that's how the first aggregate contributes to the false sense of self. Okay. And good. Now we can move on to the second skanda, Vedana. Which is my feelings, pleasure, pain, feeling tone, I believe is what you use. This starts to enter into our emotional reality, which of course you know is very different from our physical reality. It's a different level of knowing that we have as human beings. But it's not quite full-blown emotion as we think of it. It's more um, this sort of lower level um, uh, feeling tone that is attached to everything that comes in a sense door. Let me give you an example, and I think that'll explain. Yeah. Examples are good. Examples are so good. (laughs) (laughs) Show me. Don't tell me. (laughs) Right. So you have an eye. It's a sense organ. And you can see, you have a sense, and you see a beautiful flower. So you have a sense object. And at the very moment that you see this beautiful flower, you find it pleasant. That is the feeling tone. And the Buddha said, part of his map was that the pleasant or unpleasant quality of everything that you experience comes to you exactly at the same moment that you have the experience. Hmm. Okay. Another example. You've got a pain in your knee. This is your sense of touch, and it is having an unpleasant uh, sense object, this sense object of pain, and it's having an unpleasant reaction. So that's different from the pleasant reaction. And some people say there's neutral, and some people say there is no neutral. So what this is telling me is it's bypassing our brain. This is like something that's sort of intrinsic at a deeper level um, where it's almost like, I mean, because we're putting like pain and pleasure on it, there's kind of a, there's a judgment about what it is, right? Pleasure versus pain. Yeah. Um, ah versus ah. But um, it happens concurrently with the, um, the sensation itself. The experience, yeah. So it's, it's impacting us before we have a chance to think about it. That's right. And neuroscience is confirming this today, which is really interesting. That it's, 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 if you know about, if you have an experience of something through any sense door, you find it pleasant or unpleasant. Unless it's kind of beneath your notice and then it might be neutral. So why is this important? The reason it's important is because when something's pleasant, our tendency is to get attached to it very quickly. Here's this beautiful flower that I've just sensed. I like this flower very much. I would like about 50 more of these flowers. Could you get them delivered tomorrow? You know, I can't really afford it, but I'm doing it anyway because I like, I want these flowers now. 
<laughs> Could you get them here in an hour? It <laughs> <laughs> reminds me too, up in Nevada City that where I live, there's this ice cream parlor and they have this ice cream called Bourbon Breakfast. And it's like the pleasure of eating bourbon breakfast ice cream is so good. It's like there's a part of me that just wants, I want more, I want more, I want more. And I can't just like say, no, you know, I just can't have one scoop. Yeah. Um, anyway. We call this desire. Desire, yes. <laughs> and we call it want. Want. <laughs> want. I always, I always think of the little two-year-old in the shopping cart whose mom won't let him have the candy, you know, <laughs> and he's screaming his head off. That's me. <clears throat> so on the other hand, with unpleasant uh, sensory experiences, our tendency is to be averse to them. We get this out of here. So we're either leaning in towards something or pulling away from it. We cannot be with things as they are when we're in this state of desire or aversion. We are just, um, this is the second noble truth, that suffering is craving. Suffering is caused by craving, the wanting things to be different from the way they are. Mm. I love that saying. Yeah. It's important to notice that the Buddha was not against pleasure. There's nothing wrong with pleasure. It's just getting attached to it that causes the problem. And there's a beautiful little poem by William Blake called Eternity that I'll read to you. He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. He who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. So I think I want to make an example of what that could look like. If you see a beautiful butterfly fly off of a beautiful flower and just appreciate the moment, that is non-attachment. But as soon as you see it and you want to capture that butterfly, put him in your net, pin him down in the papers and smash him between the pages for however long until he's like spread out because you you must have, uh, that takes it away and that's where this whole piece comes in, yeah? Exactly, exactly. And the point here is that Vedna is this second pile of stuff that makes up our world, this pleasant, unpleasant thing. And like all the other piles of stuff, we think of it as part of ourself, my pleasure, my pain. The Buddha suggests that we notice pleasure and pain, but not identify them and not be confused that they are evidence of having a self. So that would be like, um, even though it's part of you, as you say it, uh, or uh, we attach to it and we claim it's mine, the, the better way to look at it is as if it's almost, I don't want to say outside of ourselves, but it's just it just is. It's just there, and it's not you. It is just part of what the... Um, it's just part of the landscape. It's right, exactly right. Don't identify with it. It doesn't have to be evidence of a self. Okay, go ahead. Number, Moving on. Yeah. yeah. The third aggregate, sanya, perception. This is the faculty we have that recognizes things. And a lot of what we call thinking falls into this category. 
Sanya literally means the knowledge that puts things together. What that's referring to is that as human beings, we are great categorizers. We see patterns in everything. We have this great capacity to match things with what we've seen before. So, you know, you can throw down the tea leaves and find all kinds of patterns in there and read someone's future. Or you look up in the sky at the Milky Way and other galaxies and you see a bear and then a little bear and an archer and a dog and kings and queens. And we just make patterns out of everything. So um, I think of this as database lookup. So my eyes fall, my sense organ, the eyes fall on something and I, some rupa from out there, and I say to myself, oh, it's a chair. We all know what a chair is. We go into the database and retrieve not just the word chair, but also the concept of a chair. And then this new chair, which we've never seen before, and maybe it's very modern and, and unchair-like, but we know it's a chair. And we know that it can fit into this category of chair. We can match the new things to the old categories. And the key piece is we crave to do this. We oh, want we to categorize it. everything we see. Oh, it's a glass. Or it's, oh, that's a sheet of paper and it's right. got writing on it. And it's right. got that font. Or um, I'm looking at the stuff in front of me. Oh, it's got this, looks like a microphone. It's a microphone. It, it's computer screen. It's this. It's that. It's... um. We can't not categorize things. We yeah. are pattern, we're hardwired to find Hard. patterns. Yes, and it's our survival. It's a great gift. But on the other hand, oh, he's a Virgo. That's why he's that way. You know, we over categorize and we dismiss things in their categories. And we just miss reality sometimes because all we're seeing is the category. I remember Adi Ashanti's a Zen guy that I really like said, as soon as we label something, like we call it a chair, or we call it a leaf, or we call it a bird, or we call it a cloud, we lose something like 95 to 97% of our direct experience with it. Right. All of a sudden, it's just kind of a word we point out and go, oh, it's that. Yeah. Versus it's, we, it, at that point, it just becomes this object outside of us versus something that we can truly appreciate as being so much more than that label we stick on it. Right. If we can set these patterns aside, and they're useful, we need them to navigate the world, but they, they're filled with preconceptions. So we miss, we, we don't see reality anymore. We, we miss the beautiful detail of having fresh eyes. <laughs> okay. And we think of it as me, my perception, my mind, my thinking. I know chairs, right? Mm -hmm. we, this is another part of what we mistake for ourselves. So we have an attachment to our patternizing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Don't take that away. <laughs> <laughs> On to the fourth. Yes. Okay. The fourth skanda is sankara, which means mental formations, or state of mind. All of our volitions and actions are derived from our state of mind. Buddhism says there's 52 mental states, and you can look them up on the internet. There's lists. And they include every kind of state, 
that we could be in. Loving kindness is a mental state. Hate is a mental state. Sleepiness, uh, composure, uh, making an effort. All of these are mental states. And we think this is evidence of the self. My mental state. I'm feeling sleepy. It's me who's sleepy. So once again, this illusion of the self is promoted by grammar. At the beginning of the Dhammapada, the Buddha says, mind precedes all mental states. Mind is their chief. They are all mind wrought. If with an impure mind, a person speaks or acts, suffering follows him like the wheel that follows the foot of the ox. Mind precedes all mental states. Mind is their chief. They are all mind wrought. If with a pure mind, a person speaks or acts, happiness follows him like his never departing shadow. So mental states can be a cause of suffering, a very great cause of suffering. Many people feel that mental states kind of visit on us and we have no control of them. We have to endure them. But um, as you develop spiritually, you start to realize, uh, you have this mature realization that you can take some responsibility for your state of mind. It's not out of your control. You can incline the mind away from the unwholesome incline the mind towards the skillful. There's a lot of freedom in learning this. So then we start to leave behind this idea of my mental state. This is me. I'm so angry. I'm so happy. I'm annoyed. The me, me, me. Okay. And now we take the big one on you. Yeah, the last one. Vijnana, consciousness. So... Um, Consciousness is the last of these piles of stuff that make up our world. The last one that we confused with having a true self. Our culture teaches us what Doug said just a little while ago, I think, therefore I am, Descartes. Our ongoing consciousness, this steady stream, since we were old enough to remember things, seems to be more than anything, me. This is me. It's always been me. Doug referred to Adya Shanti, and I remember one time I went uh, to sit with him, and he said this amazing quote, the person who is looking out of your eyes this minute is the same person who looked out of your eyes when you were six years old. We all remember that six-year-old person, and that's me. That's I. But Adya Shanti was not saying that was I. He was pointing out the illusion. Of course, we all have a conventional self. You need a conventional self to function in the world. A conventional self is sort of this, all these things we've been talking about all so far. All these things, yeah. My state of mind, my consciousness, my, my perceptions, body, my patternizing, right. all of it. But what we really are, have the illusion of is an absolute self a self that is eternal. The Hindu religion uh, posits that we will be reborn and that our eternal soul will come back and our, our status in this world, our caste, will be a result of 
probably how many rites and rituals we paid for. And the Buddha said, no, that's not, that's not true. The Buddha was very revolutionary. He said that we don't get reborn. Our, there is no eternal soul that gets reborn. And today in India, where the caste system is still so strong, many uh, untouchables have converted to Buddhism. Untouchables being the lowest caste, hmm. who are people that won't be touched. Terrible or, people. Nobody yeah. wants to touch. Yeah, they have all the worst jobs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't stop it. It just does it. I, I remember a quote I liked. It was um, basically it says, we are meaning-making machines. Great. And the way we make meaning is through story. So what's your story? So I want to, so for me to know you, I've got to know your story. And I'm going to make one up um, based on a lot of these other things, how I perceive you, whatever patterns I see, whatever my senses are telling me. So, um, but th- it's that, pa- it's just something we seem to be hardwired to do, especially this mental piece. It's, it, it's coded in stories. It's coded in stories. I think about the planet Earth and the, what, 7 billion, 8 billion, how many, ever many people yeah, we are now? Yeah, I think now. they're around 6 and or 7. each one has an incredible story, don't they? Every single person on this planet has a story, amazing story. You know, I kind of love that. <laughs> <laughs> Stories are great, but... Stories are great. So, so the, is there anything you want to add on the... Um, I do want to add one thing, that the Buddha gave a simple definition of consciousness. He said that you have consciousness, you have an eye, you have a flower, the eye sees the flower, and there's eye consciousness. So he defined it through the senses. I just want to put that in there because that's the detail of it. So there's the thing, and then there's the eye that sees it, and then we could almost call it like an event horizon. Right, a contact point. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that is, and the sum of all that makes our consciousness. <clears throat> so so what, what is what, the, what really matters? Yeah, so <laughs> what do we do with, with all this? And just to recap, so there's, um, at the highest level, there's these three, um, what did Marks, you call them? Marks, characteristics yeah. of existence. And there was suffering, impermanence, and then there's this whole piece, which is, remind me, no what self. do you call it? No Where self. Self is not real. And that's the area that we're talking about So today. that's what all these aggregates form is no self. No self, yeah. So what do you do with this? And well, how do you yeah. explore it? How do you, I mean, where you so, you know, we want to ask the question, what am I? I'm these five skandhas, I'm these six senses. But the Buddha said, I teach only suffering and the end of suffering. So he's saying, don't ask who am I? There are imponderables. Don't ask how the universe was created. Don't ask what it feels like to be enlightened. Don't ask who am I? Ask, how can I make the causes of suffering go away? How can I be happy? So It's the prime directive. <laughs> yeah, it's the prime directive. 
So these five heaps are always there. They're always working together and they're always creating your reality. And they're always giving you the illusion that you have this self, homo sapiens, man who knows. In fact, we are homo sapiens sapiens, man who knows he knows. The higher order of consciousness, because we are aware of ourselves of conscious beings as conscious beings. And we're <clears throat> if we can get past our pride in self-congratulation of being conscious beings, we can see it as a doorway. So what is it a doorway to? Yeah, great question. Yeah, what's it a, what's it a doorway to? For one, the, one of the first things that as you pursue spiritual development, you find there's an observer. There's the one who watches, the one who knows, and watches ourselves get attached, watches us fall into all the things we didn't want to do, but is not part of it. So right away, there's a part of you that's free. There's a part of you that's not part, not engaging in that downward spiral. And I, I want to kind of give an example of what this feels like or looks like um, so that people can understand this a little better because I think there's a, there's a big kind of a, it's not the easiest thing to do. You've got this brain that is just spinning. I like to think of it sometimes as like a racquetball bouncing inside of a racquetball court. You know, every time it hits a wall, there's a new thought. And it says, boom, 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 boom. And, you know, if you sit with yourself for just a minute and actually try to track what you're thinking, you know, you might come up with 60 things in 60 seconds. Boom, 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 boom. You know, it's hot, it's cold. Oh, I got an itch. Um, oh, my car, did I turn it on? Maybe it's hot outside. Is a bird going to, you know, drop splat on it? And your mind can just spin and spin and spin and there's actually this ability and this is what meditation is partially about is being able to instead of being engaged in that racquetball thing like being the ball itself bouncing around it is to kind of pull away enough to see that ball bouncing around and that's the observer state you're actually able to look at your mind almost like you look at your hand or your leg or your foot and go, oh, look at that brain. It just doesn't stop. My God. And it is this separate piece of you that is not all of you, just like your hand is no more all of you than your foot is or anything else. So that's what this observer state, that's a partial explanation of what it's like being in that observer state. You can actually watch your mind working without being sucked into the monkey mind, as they call it, or the racquetball court. I love your analogy of the <clears throat> racquetball bouncing around. Oh, it's, that's just a great analogy. And you know why I think the internet works so much for us? Because it's just another chance to racquetball. Yeah. You know, you're hyperlinking from one thing to the next, just like that whole list you just gave, you know, I got to do this, my car, whatever, I got to write a thank you note, my aunt. We're jumping around. And so that's, it's just an extension of what we do anyway. So yeah. No wonder we love the internet, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, so, um, so this is a doorway to realize that and to, to get in touch with this observer and to kind of look look at that whole process while it's happening and not be lost in it, mm -hmm. not be the not be the racquetball. <laughs> <laughs>
what other kind of gateway can this understanding about not having a self? I mean, it sounds like, oh, okay, these three marks of existence, there's suffering, I can buy that. There's, things are not permanent. Well, we know that. But no self? Come on. What are you, crazy? Of course I have a self. It's a very hard concept to take in because the ego doesn't like it one bit. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe you don't have a self, but I do. <laughs> and the ego is that racquetball yeah. bouncing around in there. Yeah. It's got its own agenda. So what else can this kind of understanding uh, that there is no self, what else can it give to us? It can open this gateway to um, greater states of awareness. We can become aware of our own awareness. So that is, instead of putting your attention on the racquetball bouncing around, which you can do, this is actually turning that vision outward and looking back at that which is looking at the racquetball bouncing around, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And it's even greater than the observer. It's like kind of, it kind of shoots you out into this great space when you try this, when you try to be aware of your own awareness. The things start to grow and and move into a very infinite sort of space. Be aware of your own compassion. Be aware of be aware of infinite infinite space. I remember Audia. I'm going to mess this quote up probably, but when you look in the mirror at yourself, when you look at your eyes, who is that which is looking out? It's um. Hmm. Anyway, I don't know why that came, but it yeah. did. So someone recently was talking uh, to me about enlightenment, and they said, you don't get to awaken. And at first I didn't get it, and I said, well, why not? You know, I want to awaken. <laughs> yeah. And but then I heard the you, the you, you don't get to awaken, because when awakening comes, you, the self, is nowhere to be found. So what do you do with that? <laughs> well, <try>. if anything <laughs> yeah everyone's mm. had these moments everyone's had these moments of kind of uh, transcendence where we kind of lift up off the racquetball court and something greater and it feels really good and we want to know more about it and that's the seeds of spiritual development so what is it we're hoping to achieve with this right we've got all these all the we've got these five pieces we can deep dive into each one we've got these 52 characteristics and we've got this mind that's bouncing around and we've got these sensory things going on and this pattern making happening and this story creation and on and on and on so as we learn about this and we observe it too in our meditation or whatever approach we take to that where are we going with this what do we want to achieve why why is it uh powerful to start to break apart the sense of self why is it powerful it's powerful because once you start to break apart this false sense of self once the illusion of self begins to drop away and it can be difficult 
It can be confusing. It can be frightening. But if you stay with it in its place, something else arises. Something without words, something that was there all along. People call it a sense of connectedness. Because when the self subsides, our connectedness with everybody else and everything else and all those flowers and even the racquetball, all of that comes true. And we have this sense of peace and we have this connectedness, this, this universality that can fill us. So it's very, very valuable. Um, I'm going to take a, another leap here. Um, and this, this may bring in some work from some other people, but um, the part that, that Adia, I keep coming back to Adia Shanti. I really He's like great. him. Yeah. yeah. I, I highly recommend you look him up. And I'll, there'll be links around here somewhere, but adiashanti.com or adiashanti.org. Um, he, the, the way he phrases it, I'm going to paraphrase it here, is that it's like life seeks to express itself through us. And we are a unique expression of this bigger thing. We are spirit seeking to have a human experience. And it is our job simply to get out of our own way. These, what we were talking about today, this ability to kind of deconstruct yourself and move the ego aside, all this programming that you think is so important, which is really just a racquetball bouncing around, um, and all these other things that go with that. If you can rise above that and become sort of a clear channel for life expressing itself, that is the life that you are seeking. And not you are seeking, but that is seeking to be expressed because you, in a sense, aren't there anymore. Um, and another, I'm going to bring in another author here. He kind of comes at it from a different way and yet feels especially relevant. There's a book called Fate and Destiny by an author named Michael Mead. And I believe it's Michael Mead. And there's two parts of that. Um, fate, our fate is, so there's fate and destiny. There's two parts. One, fate is that we come into this life with a gift, but we know not what it is. And our destiny, if we are to live a full life, is to find what that gift is and express it. And I asked him if he could you know, take that down to a single sentence. And he said, it's to sing your note. And what I see through Adi Ashanti's thing of life seeking to express itself is life has a note for you and it is seeking to express that note through you. And it is your job to get out of your own way so that that can happen. And the rewards are that you as however you wanted to find you at that point, is you'll be a full expression. You will be in harmony with all that is. And you will be, you will have a an amazing life that you probably can't even begin to fathom in that egoic state. So this is something much bigger. And my first, so to go in even a little deeper here, my first real experience with this was when I went down the rabbit hole so rabbit hole so far I was really ready to like go and 
through grace, I ended up in a place down in the Grand Canyon where all of my years of grief and anger and sadness, which had felt like an ever-tightening hole or a crevasse that I was falling into, took me to where it's like my life vectors came to a point, and I associated that point with death, literal death. And the life vectors did come to a point, but in that experience down in the Grand Canyon, uh, it was like the lines came to that point and then they crossed. And on the other side of that sort of eye of the needle, there was this feeling of spaciousness, internal spaciousness I'd never known. And all of a sudden, there was room for all of it, the anger, the sadness, the grief, and all of that. But also this feeling of realizing there's something so much bigger than me here. I felt almost like I'd been wiped clean. And I was a blank canvas in that moment. And it was my first real sense of, you know, I just want to say, wow like awe, to to behold something so much bigger than me and to realize I was it, it was me. Uh, it just kind of dissolved into oneness. And that is, um, yeah, that was a turning point for me. And it's what part of what keeps me coming back for this because once you felt that, and I'm such a deep believer in somatic experience, this is something that didn't happen in the head. It was something that was a total body uh, experience. As uh, Robert Heinlein, I think, says, uh, Stranger in a Strange Land, he uses the word grok, and it's to get something totally, your mind, your heart, your head, everywhere, body, to feel it on all levels. And once you've had that feeling and you've experienced that, um, there's no going back. <laughs> I don't even know what to say after that. I think you've said it. Um, so where do people go with this? Okay, so let's say that that experience I had is one is one possibility. Um, but they want it's like okay, I get it. This this could be good. I want to explore more. What should they do next? Where do we go with this? There's meditation. There's, there's meditation. There's the arts. When you, I think artists constantly report that when they do their finest work, they're not in the room. They're not even there. It comes through them. So just trying, uh, you know, even if you've never done any artwork, take a little do a drawing, try it, you know, and you'll, you'll start to experience the self uh, stepping aside and letting something else through. So find the media that works for you. Could be writing too. Could be writing, could be drawing, could be music, could be dancing, could be drumming, could be, you know, there's a lot of art forms. See if you can find that which is seeking to express itself through you to s express itself. Right, and it could be teaching, it could be counseling, it could be co-counseling, you know, helping people and helping yourself and just working. There's so many um, skillful 
things that you can do out there and you'll find and I'm sure you if you stop and think about it you're all everybody's doing stuff and and that the stuff that you do has the most power in your life when you let it be and you're not like controlling and manipulating it and let's let's explore the meditation part a little bit too this is um I mean it seems so simple right you sit on a pillow or sit in a chair or whatever in silence you don't move this is so i remember jack cornfield saying what is meditation and i'm because this is a clean show i'm going to have to be um careful about what i say here but basically you sit your your buns down on the pillow and you deal with the stuff that comes up right. and it will and you learn you know you you sit down and your mind wanders you know the racquetball's off and running bouncing off of walls and you'll go off on it for a bit and you'll be bouncing around and you'll be caught in the story about is your car, is there a bird above your car right now? Um, did you lock the door? Is the ice cream melting because you forgot to crank the freezer up or whatever? You stuck it in the wrong section of the refrigerator and you come back to your breath. You follow your breath. You find a place that you can concentrate and bring your attention to keep coming back to it. it's kind of like the um oh it's it's like if you're looking at the x and y chart on a one of those algebra things it's where x and y cross you just keep coming back there and then you're going to take off at x vector y vector or a three-dimensional one xyz and then you come back and then you go off the racquetball bounces over there and you catch yourself oh i'm thinking or you hear something or you feel something and then you just go, oh, okay, and the mind will tell you something, and you just say thank you for sharing or whatever works for you, and you come back again to that neutral place until the next one spins off. And in this observation, you learn about yourself. You like, you may spend a lot of time thinking about money problems or about your relationship stuff, and you will start to see patterns. Here we go, pattern recognition. But that's information that lets you know more and more about yourself right and there's kind of two levels of patterns that we discover as we as we meditate and there's the first is that you get all those your personal patterns some of which are not so wholesome and as once you see them you have a chance to work with them more but we also see the big patterns like the big how does this universe work like hey what goes around comes around is that a pattern? Is that a law? Yeah, maybe it is, you know, and we start to be able to live in in more harmony with how things work because we see the big picture. Okay. So we were into this almost an hour. Um, what other key things? Where? What's the first thing they should do? Oh, the first thing you got to do in all cases, is be really nice to yourself. Set up an atmosphere of friendliness as you proceed. You know, we in our culture, we all have these critical voices that come up and rip us to shreds. So many of us do. And just try to recognize those critical voices. Uh, tell them that they're not welcome right now. Please go away. I'm being good to myself. And especially in meditation. And just, you know, Set this up to be really good to yourself. I think that's the most important thing there is. 
key to happiness. <laughs> okay, and where um, where can they find more information? Oh, there's so much information. Let's see. Uh, there's um, the the kind of meditation that Doug and I are interested in is a vipassana or insight meditation and there are insight groups all over the world so you and the internet will just help you find them google is your friend on google that google is your friend <laughs> if you're interested more in uh, buddhist philosophy look up the five aggregates read a little bit about them on wikipedia and then click on some of those links and rack up all your way around <laughs> <laughs> buddhist psychology and you'll you'll find a lot of great stuff um, I'm going to also put a pitch in here for a book called The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. Incredible book that um, goes very deep and yet is a fun read. Um, he talks about the that sort of <laughs> the racquetball mind being like, imagine that being your roommate and sitting next to it and then realizing just how crazy you would go with a roommate like that. Um, and then there's Adi Ashanti, who we both feel is that we've had great experiences with um that's a d y a s h a n t i dot org adiashanti dot org any of his books are great um i just finished one of his called resurrecting jesus that is gives a whole different spin on the whole jesus story um and there is jack cornfield's books um what is it after the lawn, no, after the ecstasy, the laundry. <laughs> right. Um, There's a really great beginning book on meditation if you want to get, discover a little bit about insight meditation called Mindfulness in Plain English. Hmm. And it's by Bhante Gunaratana, Henepola Gunaratana, G U N A. I think if you go to Google, you'll find it, or Amazon, you'll find it, whatever bookstore near you. Great. Yeah. And I'll I'll see if I can find a list of other sources um, to list here. But thank you for your time today. Really appreciate talking with you. I I think this is one of the more esoteric, um, ethereal interviews I've had because this subject is so it it's that and it's kind of this bridge between the whew, I don't know between this grounded this the here and now and this large concept piece i hope we gave you those of you listening that we gave you a little bit more um to think about and some clarity on that and some ways to move forward thank, thank you, you. Mary. thank, thank you, you so much it's really <laughs> been a pleasure same <laughs>